Welcome to Australian Design Radio, a podcast that hopes to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. As part of that, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise their enduring connections to country, knowledge and stories. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. I'm Matt Leach and I'm your host and on this episode I'm joined by co-host Prue Jones, Design and Creative Director at Fjord and National Board Member for the Australian Graphic Design Association. Before I get into the guest for this episode, I need to thank Streamtime who's been a constant supporter. Without their help we couldn't do half as much as what we've done. Apart from being an amazing software company, they also give loads back to the industry. So go to streamtime.net slash healthy business to see all the good things they do. On there, you'll be able to find the Never Not Creative podcast, which is well worth dropping into your subscriber list. If you're looking for one to try out, try Season 4, Episode 1, Rage Over Fear. This is one of their Never Not International Women's Day sessions. Okay, on to our guest for this episode, Dr. Sam Bacillo, Design Strategist and Executive Chair of the newly reformed Australian Design Council. Now, this was recorded during one of our lockdowns, so please excuse the zoom sound it's not what i wanted but i think what sam says is well worth a listen we start off by talking about some of his education he's got a phd doctor of philosophy in design experimentation i just couldn't help myself from digging deeper into what that means we also talk about sam's book are we there yet it's a book about how to lead by design and we finally get stuck into the australian design council and what plans they have for this year and beyond Before we jump in, I just want to say thank you to the listener as well for sticking with us. It's been an up and down year and our episode releases have been pretty haphazard. Behind the scenes at ADR, we're going through a bit of an evolution and over the next few episodes, I'll be giving a few hints to what those changes are. Okay, enough talking from me. Let's jump into the interview. Hello, Sam. How are you? Hey, Matt. Hey, Prue. Hey. Let's just jump straight in. And I promise I'm not going to stick too long in your kind of past biography, but your PhD sounds incredibly interesting. And I, I guess I'm just interested in what you discovered. It's Doctor of Philosophy, and I quote, virtual prototyping as a design tool for customer product design, a comparative analysis studying the human interaction between virtual prototypes and traditional prototyping methods. So firstly, what does that, what does that mean? <laughs> oh, I think I have to go back a little bit to really get there. I mean, the, the PhD took me 10 years. When I started, I, I remember at the end of my PhD, um, I wrote in my, in, in my thank you saying, when I started this PhD, I had no children. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't living in the same place. And I'm now in, in, the, in the audience, I have two young two boys who are, are 10 years old. <laughs> you know, so wow. it's this tangible measure. Look, the, the PhD, um, if I go back a few steps, so I'm an industrial designer, and, and, and as an industrial designer, I, I was really never quite happy with consulting world. Um, I, I did a lot of consulting through my studies, and I got very frustrated that I, I was learning all these skills to, to, to really solve complex problems, but when I went out into practice, I was just given a really mundane problem to solve. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we all will probably face that somewhere in our careers or still face it. And, and I wanted to understand why. How does design actually get further up the value chain? How do you actually better understand what design does? How do you to better understand it? So to communicate it better to business, you better understand it better. Yeah. And part of my PhD was actually to better understand this whole prototyping process. So 
CAD was just coming in, computer-aided design in, in the time, so it just really started. So some of the virtual, you know, virtual reality systems were, were on, on, coming online and there was this whole view that design studios were all going to go virtual. We'd never have to do another claim model again. And, and it was getting a lot of traction. You know, I was being told, yeah, your skills aren't about, you know, your model making skills. Yeah. But the model making skills was the, the, the skill in it was actually how you thought through prototyping, mm. not the actual presentation or the critique or the artifact itself. So my PhD was actually about exploring how designers, when, how do they perform in a virtual world versus what they do in a physical world? And, and it really helped me conceptualize this notion of learning by doing and, and, and prototyping. And that in a virtual world, designers are great when they're, when they're experienced because they actually add all this other, you know, art over their interactions. They use multi-modalities to communicate their message. They have little codes. Non-designers can't do that. When you try to put a non-designer in a virtual world and actually ask them to do the same thing, to talk about an abstract concept, they fail. And, and so this is actually how you can actually get to use design in a more, um, I suppose, deep and meaningful way. So do you think people with the skills, I guess the manual skills, the hand skills, once they learn the program, are they, are they better in the program? Or like, are they, are they able to push it further? No, because, and I think this is where my PhD was, I actually ended up looking at designers who were, you know, practitioners of 20 odd years, learning some tools, and then those students who were just actually learning tools as they were going. It was this 20 years of knowledge that you could put into a virtual world and hack it for a solution, for a better word. Mm. And, that, and that's what they were good at doing. The system itself forced you down, so CAD system, you know, to perform a certain way. Um, and it's very hard to break out of that. Um, there's nothing better than going down to a workshop and just, you know, taking a bit of um, styrene and just working through a problem. Yeah. You can't do that in a computer application. Was your PhD connected to your master's in any way? Because, again, your master's title was, was a really <laughs> interesting one, and I'm going to quote it again. Um, measurement of energy expenditure in children for the design of an indirect calorimeter. That's the word I'm looking for. Well, what is a calorimeter first? Uh, so, so a calorimeter is actually used when so children who have like cystic fibrosis or doing yeah. liver transplants, um, they need to measure their breath. And so it's a way of capturing um, respiratory um, and, and doing measurements so they can actually have the right calories given to them. And it was a, it was a lovely, so, so again, same thing going back in today. So this was actually after yeah. I finished my, I, um, I, through my studies, undergraduate studies, I consulted, I got really frustrated. So when I graduated, I thought I, I need to better understand um, you know, how design can actually solve some really complex problems. And I'd done my, my final year undergraduate was actually with um, a hospital. And they said, we really like the way you think. Why don't you apply for this job? And I was actually put into a team and there was like 80 odd engineers applied and one industrial designer and I got the job. And, and that became a master's project. And what they said was, you were the only one that actually talked about the patient. You're the mm. only one that talked about the patient and the parent and, and the technology will come. So that ability to have a, a real scientific exploration that they were working on, cystic fibrosis and measuring energy, the gap that they had was, well, we have to actually get that into the hands of users, which was, was children. And so design was that bridge. And, and for me, that was a really good way of exploring, well, that's what I was actually trained to do. Now, that was a scientific exploration. It was, it was a research program. So I didn't have to, have to worry about the commercial realities. But it still helped me understand why design could actually start to add 
will be different to an engineering or, or some other way of problem solving. I really like the fact that your kind of academic breakthroughs happen due to frustration. <laughs> I had hair once. <laughs> so you're talking before about sort of solving problems with your hands. Um, I think that's that's actually a really good way to think. I often do that myself. Like if you want to solve a problem, you just it seems if your hands are moving, you're also thinking. It's, it's really yep. good. Mm. But you know, like uh, so. At the moment, you, you're overseeing a, um, well, you've got a design strategy and leadership role in agriculture. Um, that doesn't seem like a sector that kind of would yeah. uh, really require design. Um, so what does, what does that role entail exactly? And can you tell yeah. us a little bit about your day-to-day? -day? So my, my day job is, is I was working with a, 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 an organisation that, that helps really the agriculture industry value-add. So, so Australia's got a lot of agriculture. 50% uh, of its land mass is nearly under agriculture. Um, and a lot of that is commodity driven. So, so very much dig it up and, and sell it. Um, and, and we've been very good at that. And then there's a, you know, our industries are, are, are quite highly valued. But as we move forward and, and some of the challenges that, that we're facing, you know, the complexities from sustainability, from, from um, ethical production to, to trade barriers, to, to climate, requires you a, a different approach to actually look at, well, how do we actually both understand what we grow in and where is the value going to be added uh, throughout that? And, and that's not just the product that might end up out there. It's actually the way of thinking. How do you actually frame those problems? And, and what are the business models that are actually required? So if I, if I work in the agriculture industry, my customer is actually not the next person up the value chain, you know, the, the person I sell it to in, in the farmer market or, or along that line. It's very much around, well, someone's actually paying for that. What, what value do they see? And how do you actually work that all the way back through the value chain? But the first part is really making sure we have a big enough understanding of where the problem is and where the opportunity lies. So, so my day-to-day -day is actually looking after, you know, working with an executive team and looking after a portfolio of R&D that does that. Is it, is it heavily influenced? I, I guess it, it seems like without sort of bringing up climate change, I guess I have just brought up climate change. Um, is it is it like, it feels like an area that is gonna be evolving quite quickly over like the next decade as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I just came from a seminar of, you know, having to feed 10 billion people um, on, mm. on the planet, and, you know, when, when we've got constraints uh, within that, you know, that's a, that's a wicked design challenge mm. uh, that, that needs not just a way of actually how to become more productive, you know, what, what do you look at? And, and then what is that, you know, segmentation of where those, those customers are, again, where does value is that? How do you do that ethically? How do you actually do that with some of the challenges of, of climate, which, which are, um, you know, front and centre for everyone in agriculture and, and, and in many businesses. So I suppose my role is to say, well, there is no one right answer. And again, with any design solution, yep. there's no one right answer. And likewise, designers don't like compromise. It's choices. So helping people make those choices and then actually execute on those choices through design and, and bringing teams together where you've got different domain knowledge, you've got different expertise and actually working through and actually helping understand the complexity of the problem. But half the problem is untangling the problem space. Yeah. And um, we don't spend enough time on it. Yeah. What's that um, saying about you've got to cut down a tree, sharpen an ax first for like yeah. <laughs> That's really, that's the nub of it, isn't it? Like with, with these sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, Einstein, if I had an hour, an hour to save the world, I'd spend 59 minutes defining the problem. Yeah. And one minute execute. Yeah. And, and, and I think 
what I found, I'm only new to agriculture, three, four years into it. And again, with any industry, I suppose it's the same. There's enough technology solutions out there that can actually be applied. It's just actually applying to the right problem. Mm. And that's a bit we often miss. And, and design's a good way of actually helping understand the complexities. We purposely started off talking about your, I guess, academic background and then about your professional. And it seems looking back over your career, there's been a really nice kind of like, they've always worked very nicely together, which is not the case for everyone. And I guess I was interested in, in how you made that happen and, and whether that was a conscious decision or, or something that just happened. Oh, look, I have to say, I've, I've been quite fortunate in my life where you can you know, kind of track your own trajectory of where you want to go and, and you know, very much curious by nature. And I, and I think this ability to say academia has allowed me to go deep and understand problems and, and the process. But again, quite, you know, using the, I like to work with my hands analogy. I also like to get out and do stuff mm. and not just talk and write about it. It either starts by sometimes I, I just like to understand the theory and then I'll go out and actually try to implement the theory or I actually found the problem by working in practice and understand why was that the case. Um, if you look back over my career, probably every five years I've, um, I've, I've gone back out of one or the other. I was lucky when I was a young academic. I started as a, like I was a tenured academic back in when I was like 24, 25 years of age. Wow. Uh, which is quite young. But I had a very, very good dean and head of school. He said, you're very young. Uh, you don't have a lot of industry experience. So, so they gave me sabbaticals. And, and that was the true value of sabbatical, to go out and actually constantly challenge yourself in practice. Mm. So one of those areas, uh, which is, you know, pure practice, I would, I would say would be about your book that you wrote in 2015 called, are we there yet? Insight uh, into how to lead by design. I wanted to talk about it because I think some of the themes that were brought up were are really relevant today, probably even more so. And basically, kind of like they've always worked very nicely together, which is not the case for everyone. And I guess I was interested in, in how you made that happen and, and whether that was a conscious decision or, or something that just happened. Oh, look, I have to say, I've, I've been quite fortunate in my life where you can you know, kind of track your own trajectory of where you want to go and, and you know, very much curious by nature. And, and, I, and I think this ability to say academia has allowed me to go deep and understand problems and, and the process. But again, quite, you know, using the, I like to work with my hands analogy. I also like to get out and do stuff mm. and not just talk and write about it. It either starts by sometimes I, I just like to understand the theory and then I'll go out and actually try to implement the theory or I actually found the problem by working in practice and understand why was that the case. Um, if you look back over my career, probably every five years I've, um, I've, I've gone back out of one or the other. I was lucky when I was a young academic. I started as a, like I was a tenured academic back in when I was like 24, 25 years of age. Wow. Uh, which is quite young. But I had a very, very good dean and head of school. He said, you're very young. Uh, you don't have a lot of industry experience. So, so they gave me sabbaticals. And, and that was the true value of sabbatical, to go out and actually constantly challenge yourself in practice. Mm. So one of those areas, uh, which is, you know, pure practice, I would, I would say would be about your book that you wrote in 2015 called, Are We There Yet? Insight uh, into how to lead by design. I wanted to talk about it because I think some of the themes that were brought up were are really relevant today, probably even more so. And basically, as I understand, the book outlines the kind of, I guess, that our standard of living relies on growth, but growth is slowing down. 
And while design thinking is kind of well placed to kind of to start answering some of those, or at least find the problem for some of those things, yep. a lot of businesses are unable to adequately kind of, I guess, take it on or, or kind of adapt to it. Have I got that roughly right? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very good solution. You should have written my blurb. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm available for work. <laughs> can Can you tell us a little bit more about it? I guess where where it came from. The book itself um, was really there as, as, a, as a primer for, for those firms who, who, who had you know, seen something about design and they wanted to use design to actually change their way of, of, of doing business. Uh, they may have had a designer in-house, uh, may not be getting the value out of them, they read something about design thinking and say, well, look, it can actually really add uh, significant value to my business. I, I want a bit of this. And then... This was around the time when design thinking was really coming to its you know, early stages in Australia. So on that trajectory, where everyone really going, you know, design thinking is a new thing. And we, you know, we started to, to pop up design agencies everywhere who offered design thinking, which, which was good um, on one hand. But for what happened was <laughs> there was a lot of innovation theatre happening. Yeah. So that, that you know, people would go in three days, a boot camp, uh, design thinking is just about actually sprinkle some design thinking dust around the organization. We'll make everyone feel good and um, we'll walk away and we'll never hear from you again. And, and you know, you've been rubber stamped as a design thinking organization. So, so I was frustrated by this that, that firms were becoming design aware but couldn't then follow through with the challenges because it was hard. To, you know, as everyone knows, to implement a really good design strategy is, is challenging. Um, it requires, you know, real, um, you know, internal reflections inside your own organizational structures, where you want to play, how you want to win, what's the organizational mix you've got, re uh, skills and, and resources. So the book was really set up by, I'd done this work with the Queensland government, uh, which came out of a program around New Zealand called Better by Design, which is a really good program in New Zealand to help New Zealand businesses lead by design. The Queensland government wanted to pilot that, and I was asked to lead that with a number of firms. and and. It was a really good model where you could bring in a, like a product industrial designer, a brand designer, um, and then there was actually more about a, a strategist came in. And, and for a couple of days, we, we really unpacked the business with the executive team. And then we actually um, you know, gave six months of mentoring and that really helped them actually go, well, this is what design is. And, and they had to roll up their sleeves. I, I use a lot of case studies from that work in my book about what is their journey. And, and, the, and the title, Are We There Yet? was pretty much what every CEO ever asked me. Are we leading by design? Are we there yet? <laughs> have, we, have we cracked it yet? And yeah, the, you know, the, 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 the irony is you're never going to lead. You're never going to be there because you're constantly going to challenge. Um, and so the book was there to say, I had a lot of firms saying, oh, can you help us consult? I said, well, before you, are you ready for this? Because it's not for everyone. Read this book and can you answer some questions? Mm. And, and, and it was a really good just... This is what it's about. This is a journey. It's more than a three-day boot camp. And here are some questions you have to ask yourself or your leadership team. And if you're ready for that, then I think we can have a chat. Hmm. So are we there yet? Would you say that uh, has the level of maturity around design thinking in Australia? Oh, look, and I suppose it's, it's more so uh, uh, the design thinking part of it. I think it, it's gone through its own wave of, um, you know, firms who, who have... Uh, you know, really pushed the boundaries of what can be done, gone to commodify it. Mm. Um, that commodification's led to some disappointments uh, because really actually it's given us the answer we already knew um, or it's just so hard we can't implement it. 
Um, and I think we're now plateauing out in some good models of, of good partnerships uh, between design thinking agencies and, and businesses. It's not a it's not a, uh, a a tactical relationship or a transactional relationship. It's truly is a partnership relationship. Yeah. And I think we've got you know yeah. businesses. It's interesting because I, I see so often you know like design thinking like you were talking about boot camps or whatever with no designers actually in the process. Yeah. <laughs> design thinking will sort of become this methodology framework. You put some inputs in the beginning and then it spits out. Uh, yeah, yeah, as you said, it, it, it spits up, it tends to spit up what you already know. So yeah. what's the secret sauce that's missing in the middle, do you think? You know, how can we improve yeah, yeah, that, no. get that back, uh, you know? And I think every designer could, could probably answer that in their own way because it's that a critical thinking that we apply that, that, you know, my PhD, when we go, what do designers do? They, they have a process of reflective thinking, yeah. of being able to challenge and synthesise information, take in multiple constraints, visualise uh, solutions rapidly, um, not good help them to one, one or understand your own biases. Um, always take that empathetic view. Um, a boot camp doesn't allow you to do that. It, it follows a number of tools. Yeah. Uh, do we understand a customer? Oh, that's what they look like. Okay, tick. Whereas yeah. you know you have to sometimes be in the market and deliver a solution before you even really understand the customer and you're constantly going backwards and forwards. Yeah. And, and in a very efficient, so I think the design thinking process became very efficient without actually understanding really the value. Yeah. Yeah, and in that way, do you, do you feel like designers may have unwittingly kind of undervalued their, their role um, in, in the selling of design thinking? And I think this is one of the big challenging parts which I've seen in the design community. We have a lot of, we have a brilliant design community in Australia, world-class that I've seen. Um, but often when we come to, we, when we sell design, you know, sell it to a client, we sell the outcome, not the process. And I, I, I feel we need to spend more time on, you know, we're advocating the process, we're educating on the process, rather than actually here's the outcome of what we can get you to. Now, the outcome's a critical part of it, but that notion that design can be a verb and a noun at the same time mm -hmm. is really critical. Yeah. And, and, and I think we need, if we could spend more time, now some clients don't care about process, they just want answer, that's okay. But really those clients who really want to transform they want it, they need to actually take ownership of design um, inside their organization. I think that's what came out in the book. And some of those case studies, the CEOs and the boards, they weren't trying to replicate design. They could truly understand where a designer had expertise. Yeah. They also understood how a designer could actually help challenge beyond their other thinking. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's, you get those two to work in, in, in unison, you've got a great successful organization and a great partnership. Yeah. You would, in the book, you talk about um, convergent thinking mindset, and, and I thought that was really clever. And and it was framed about uh, uh, three questions, and I, maybe this is the questions you were, you were kind of referring to before. But this idea of setting the stage for the design-led innovation. Um, so the three questions are: uh, What business activities across the organisation do you carry out on a daily basis that is a, is ensuring that you're addressing the customers' problems? The second one was, uh, who is your customer and what problems are you solving for them? Which I thought was an excellent yep. way of framing it. And then the third one is, is where I, I've got, um, I guess, a question, because I, I thought it was really interesting that, what, what could you do less that does not directly address the customer's problem? Which I thought was a really interesting kind of take and, and something that a lot of companies probably aren't thinking about. No, and look, maybe articulate where those questions came from. So, so you know, I'm a product designer, and then, you know, when you design a product, you know, you look for, for the whole, 
So you always mm. look for, for you know, a great iPhone, you know, whatever, pick any artifact. And, and it's been well designed, crafted, and you know, the fillet's right, the materials are right, uh, the level of execution. And, and so you scale that up, a product is, a business is just like a product. It's just mm. a series of activities that need to be combined. And they need to all function together around a common purpose. And so I essentially use that metaphor when I, when I looked at, you know, what do you need to do to design a business model? Mm. So the first question is, what's, it, what's the job to be done as a business? Yeah. What's the purpose? And so, you know, who's your customer and what problem are you solving? And then, you know, that second one is, well, what do you do on every day? What are the activities that reinforce that? And let's be granular. Which bits of the elements actually yeah. really solve that problem? And then that third one is, well, you probably have a lot of superfluous you know, information here in your business. Uh, you, you know, feature creep, or you've got um, you know things that have just been added on. Especially in family businesses, we like to actually do things and have a play over here, and they just become. Well, why do we do that? I don't know. It just happened to be there. <laughs> and so, so it's so it's not a it's not true to its core. What was really interesting running those questions? I still use them. They still held the test of time. Mm. I'll usually do it in an executive team meeting, and I'd ask the CEO to go last. And you would get a different answer and it just highlighted the enormity of the challenge. And I, and I often then show them a product that might, you know, uh, two chairs that one's been designed for, you know, theater seating, another for casual seating, and you add some different details. And you say, you could both see they're actually not right or fit for purpose. Yeah. Your business is exactly the same. It's, all, it's also smart getting the CEO to go last because when oh, yeah. the CEO goes first, everyone, everyone has the same answer as yep. the CEO. <laughs> The hippo in the room. Yeah. <laughs> that that poor person has to go first, though. Yeah. <laughs> and look, and, and it's really challenged lots of hard people. Like hard mm. questions like that. I think designers are good at actually framing questions, and, and and holding people accountable. And I think this is a true value of design. You know, in our own practice, we don't compromise on actually putting a question like that up. If we see something that's not working, yeah. we really try to interrogate it further. Everyone in the organization field actually describe what their purpose is mm. and, 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 and what problem they're actually, why they're there to exist. And, you know, and, and I think that was the key part of this, that, and everything you do in an organization should lead to that bigger whole. And that's where you start to find the disconnects um, right. within a business. Um, so, so it doesn't have to be just true, you know, how you're actually solving a customer's problem, but as we are as a business, so my purpose is the same as my customer's person, you'd hope. But my job is relating to our purpose. Yeah. And I see that a lot in business where they get frustrated. Everyone wants to do a good job. You know, there's obviously there's, there's people that, that come and, you know, just become just a bit disruptive. But, but generally, everyone turns up to work to do a good job. But if they don't know where their purpose is, it's often ineffectual. And, and, and you can spend a lot of effort and, and see no impact from your, your yeah. time. And, yeah. and that's really where I think design can, can you know, really cement a, a clear purpose, get people aligned. And, and truly solve a clear problem. And, and often that is doing less. Uh, so, so one of the examples I talked about in the book was this, this firm, you know, proudly talked about it had, you know, 180 odd innovations, you know, in the business, they'd won lots of awards. And I said, well, how many of those 180 are actually delivering any value? Mm. Um, and it was, you know, see, you didn't, didn't really like that because they were all busy people, they get busy, very busy. And so, so once you actually then um, unpack that a bit further, it was only about five or six things. And, and they could become excellent at those five or six things. The extension that you made on the Danish design ladder, 
the original letter has four stages to you know to help people understand how they view, view design so stage one no design which is yep. very common obviously stage two design as styling and then stage three design as process stage four design as business strategy um, and then you kind of took that even further and added two more where you've got like design as community and organizational transformation and then design as national competitive strategy so can you talk about uh, those two yeah. final bits a little Mm. Those last two bits are really, really interesting for me. Mm. I, I get quite excited by that ability to, how do you use design? So so a lot of my work, and I was getting fortunate that the Ulysses program, helping businesses actually you know, use design to create new business models. And, mm. and that's you know, generally a discrete department or a new launch of something. But really when you start to actually get true impact, you're actually transforming the, the culture of the organisation. You're mm. pivoting from, from looking over here to actually looking over there. And that was that next ladder. That, so some of the work we were doing and the examples in that book, they were truly tr transforming their organisation. Some were not-for-profits and some were for-profit businesses, but completely had a, a different purpose, um, a different mission within that, a different org structure, and therefore different products and services that came out of that. And it was highlighting that design can go way beyond just the actual innovation aspect of an organisation. Can get to the core of an innovation and i would argue that if you really want to do true product design even design the styling starting at that fifth leg on that ladder is critical yeah because that's where you're going to start to have true impact where you've got business leaders who understand the value of actually why they're doing something where value is created where's value captured what are some of the decisions they're making so when they're briefing a designer they can have these conversations about what they want rather than make it look red or it has to sit in this catalog or, um, you know, quite, quite transactional um, solutions. So, so that, that, that ladder there, and that's where I see the, a real big emerging opportunity for design in actually helping businesses partner to actually transform the organization. And we're seeing a lot more work happening. So the Good Design Australia, I'm a judge in that and the uh, Design Strategy Award. And that's where we're starting to see examples of our firms that are actually been doing that. Uh, working in the not-for-profit sector is really exciting to see how you can deliver social impact, not just to deliver a social impact solution, you know, another UX or another app or another. It's truly how do you sustain that and, and actually get longevity. That, that's what I get excited. I really, I really like that idea as well. I mean, is it is it something you would share with clients? Because it feels like it's both like it's good for judging where they are, but it's also good for aspirational. No, no, no. I think that's where you really want to, and, and you sometimes have to build up to a client with that. But, mm. but, and, and, and you know, they're, that's when they're wanting more. Um, and, and you, again, you, know, you often hear a designer saying, I've got, you know, really a poor brief. Um, or, you know, the client doesn't get what we're doing. It's generally because the client actually can't see the value within their business. And, and, and that's really what, what designers as organizational transformation. You don't start with a solution. You start with actually the, the framing of the problem. The, you know, the, the problem is you, your organization. <laughs> and, and you can't have a good product without a, actually a good business model or a good strategy. Can I ask a curly question off the back of that? Uh, yeah. Where, where do you think Australia is on the extended design ladder? Oh, <laughs> I think, um, again, I come back and I'm... I'm we have a, I was doing some work, you know, I'll talk about it later in the Australian Design Council. And, and IP Australia has just put a value of $67.5 billion is the value of the Australian design community. 
Yeah. It's a significant amount, you know, same size as our construction sector. And they've got some interesting modeling to, to show that. So, so we've got some wonderful design talent. And then we've got obviously businesses who are leading by designs, uh, you know, being true, doing true strategy work. And when we've got a lot of work actually that are, that are transactional work and, and, and designers who are actually helping still add value. I think we have a, a utilization problem in design of our design community. Mm -hmm. The talent's there. It, it's how do we make sure that talent's being utilized in a way that actually adds greatest value both for the planet, but for the firm and actually for the community. Um, and that's where um, I'd like to put my efforts in actually helping get design up that ladder. I don't mm. think it's a problem from the supply side. I think this is an excellent segue into the next section. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and I guess I guess the reason we wanted to kind of talk about the book because I I felt it set you up perfectly for I guess your role as executive chair of the Australian Design Council. Can you give us the elevator pitch for the council? Yeah. It's a pitch is an interesting word because we're actually not trying to pitch it to anything. <laughs> it, um, the, the council's been set up because Australia's, you know, in this precarious position in most nations of, you know, coming out of COVID or living with COVID, how you want to put it, it, it needs to diversify its economy. The, the way we, our fundamentals were before need to change. Uh, it, you know, the COVID actually puts um, pressure on supply chains and one put some of on our sovereign capability. So, so we need to think differently. Mm. So as we start thinking about the, that new direction and that diversification to drive our national prosperity, how do you make sure design is actually baked into those solutions and not wait it until right at the end? And the time is right. Now, this is not, hasn't been tried before. You know, there's lots of examples of this. But, but I think we're in such a, a, a time of, of where We've got alignment of government. We've got alignment of, of our, our captains of industries who are saying we need to change. And we know design will constantly add value into a firm when they're applied strategically. So if we really want to grow our uh, prosperity and actually really deliver impact, let's make sure as we think about these transitions, let's bring our, our world-class design community to help actually frame those problems. And actually design the roadmap, but not—they're not there to actually answer it by themselves. They're there to actually say, "Well, what would you need? What would businesses need from design to get to those solutions?" And and that's a nuance. So we're we're making sure where business would be asking the right questions of the design community, mm. so they've actually got solutions actually, or that that thinking embedded from day one. My follow-up question was going to be about this idea about, um, I guess, why re-establish now? Because yeah. you know it's obviously sixty years, and you explained yeah. the idea about like COVID, which is which is a very um, valid point. But I guess also it's like you know, it, if we were thinking more in design kind of led way, maybe we would have reacted better into some of the things that have happened. Yeah, there's you know hindsight is a wonderful thing, <laughs> yeah, uh, of course, <laughs> and, and you know. Again, another one of those frustrations. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, 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 and you look at some of those, you know, Australia's, you know, there's been some good work probably going back six or seven years ago uh, where Australia said, you know, we've, we've got these areas of comparative advantage. You know, food and beverage and agriculture is one of them. Yep. You know, defence technologies is one of them. Mining resources is one of them. You know, there are elements that, that we've actually got true comparative advantage in. Um, and, and we can start to align activity to. And, and they did. They created these growth centres, the federal government, 
and, and they started to, to, to focus activity. But, but design wasn't really core to that. Designers were part of that solution, but generally much further down the value chain. They were there on the you know, ladders two and three of, mm -hmm. of working on those problems. So still adding value and making a contribution. But, but where I would, I would have hoped that design could have actually helped shape that thinking and to make sustained impact, and again, understand the complexities of where we're working, is bring design. So you're starting at ladder six. Yeah. And, wow. and, and that's right. where... And that's what we need from the design community. And it will be asking the design community to step up to the challenge in addition to business actually being you know, tolerant and actually being inclusive of actually design. But what we're hoping to do in Design Council, we've got the industry captains who are there who actually are all design aware and, 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 and have actually used design somewhere along their own business or their, their, their business um, life strategically and saying, why can't we have more of this? And so it is a brokering role. You're talking a lot about <clears throat> the value of design to business, but um, what would you say to the idea that designers also have a moral obligation to step in because the stakes are getting so high now with all of the wicked problems we have in the world yeah. and we are you know, consummate problem solvers? So just, just encouraging yeah. everyone to approach any design challenge with that sustainability yeah. lens. I mean, how, how are those conversations? How do you see those conversations playing and I think this is the reason. So, so when I talk about uh, um, you know being good for business, I, I'm working on the assumption that business is working on a triple bottom line. Mm -hmm. um, that you yeah. can't be in business without that. It'll be very hard going forward. But likewise, if you use design at the end of that that journey, it's hard to actually consider some of those factors around you know yeah. your environmental footprint, actually around the ethical dimensions of what your solution may be actually uh, looking at your supply chains that actually may be locked in already and haven't given consideration the circular economy aspects of mm, this it's yes. too late yeah and so so the by bringing design much further up and into the, the defining of of these these conversations these briefs or roadmaps um we can now start to actually look at the problem from a far more holistic way yeah and, and that's the reason now in saying that, that's hard because we, we know that's hard when, when we do it at a project level. Now, to try to do it at a sector level, the level of complexity is just amplified by a factor of you know, 100. Designers are up for that challenge. I've seen it. Uh, we have the community. Uh, the conversations we've had with the design community is that we know we can actually have uh, make our dent in it. The risk we run is not running to saying, well, we can solve it by ourselves. Yeah. And design needs to be part of a consortium, part of you know, transitionary teams um, to become part of solutions. And I think in the past we may have actually you know, come up with, say, oh, we're going to do a futuring exercise on the future of you know, um, aged care or the future of education. And designers would start that by themselves and actually run out, how would you do that? But would be disconnected from the policies or the other um, other people are also, or other groups are also considering these problems. So it's making sure design is actually both included into these conversations and designers bring their inclusivity of their thinking to these problems. So it's not just industrial design, it's, it's all spectrums of design. It'll be a journey. The Design Council is, um, you know, we, we had 60 years of history of the Design Council and we're using the same vision and mission that was actually set back in 58 to today. And so that's by the structure. And a lot of people have been surprised. Why don't we have more design leaders on, on the council? And, it, and the reason it was set up for that sole reason, we're trying to actually do um, sector level transformation. 
And so the industry will actually help frame those problems in the first instance. We then bring the design community to that table to challenge those roadmaps. And, and that's where we want to bring the entire design community, you know, by, um, by opening up and saying, well, how would you now see this? Mm. And, and that, that's where we, we want it to be that broker. So it's like a, almost like a coordination role? Yeah, and this is this notion of advocacy and, and, and oversight. So we're running mm. these national design challenges. Um, that's where we're framing it. And there's, they're already in play. There's lots of, you know, that we, there's this mission-orientated. So you, you, it's been a term around mission-orientated policy innovation where, you, you know, you create, you know, the mission, I want to go to the moon. Uh, that's a mission. They've become a bit more sophisticated now. <laughs> um, and they're not just so, so one direction, but they are. They're quite focused. We want to do X. We want to take zero plastic waste. Or we actually want to have, you know, green energy. So, so that's the mission. Well, how would design actually start to say, well, what would be the solutions that would come out of that? But then more importantly, what would be the businesses that would actually yeah. be using design to get to that? Actually, listening to you talk about that, it actually sounds like a really big backcasting operation, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you start with that endpoint and then you design the, the solutions yeah. to, yeah. And, and, and so this is where we want to bake designers into it. So, you know, those designers who are part of those challenges, it's, it's, it's not for them to say, I, I can now solve it. What we want them to do is by saying, what questions do you need business to ask of the design community to sustain the thinking? And so we're pretty much teaching them to fish to some extent and saying, well, they need to actually look at these sorts of problems. They need these sorts of considerations. They need to actually have this dimension baked into it. And that will open up opportunities for designers to actually get engaged more strategically in those businesses. Yeah. Um, and our role then is oversight. Can you talk a little bit more about those design challenges? Yeah, because yeah. if I look at the manifesto, it's like I think I think one of the first steps was was this idea of like a, a national design challenge. Yeah, and and the goal is that there will be multiples of these running running as as we go right, at any time, uh, right? At any one time, again, based on the problems of the day. So, and it's not for the design community to actually come up with the challenge. These are challenges that are actually being thought about today, you know, through policy, through our captains of industry. And, and this is where Australia will drive its prosperity from. And a lot of that thinking is already being done. So the Modern Manufacturing Fund, you know, the government just announced 1.5 billion for that and said, well, here are six key sectors. And they've given some ideas about where they want to put investment. They haven't really gone beyond the implementation. So, so. Design thinking and design doing are, are interconnected, but we yep. spend less time on the doing than the thinking. <laughs> the, the challenges are to actually the design doing part. So, so the goal would be a challenge will actually come, it will actually help be formed, and, and the, the council most likely won't be in that, that stage of actually framing the challenge because they're already there. In fact, five or six, the government thinking of. We would be bringing in the design community to bring in say, well, what would you see as that future state? How could Australia become competitive from designing this? And we'd let the designers actually start to envisage a future, which is what designers are very good at doing. Um, and that gives now government something to point at, something tangible, something tactical. But we know that you just can't come to that solution without actually having businesses get there themselves or organisations or communities or, or social groups. And so we'd be asking the design communities to backcast and not so much backcast the roadmaps, backcast, well, what's an incumbent business and what would they need from a designer at that point? It might be a social awareness program, it might be new branding activities, 
it actually may be a new implementation to a university and actually helping to actually do some prototyping uh, in terms of a particular solution. And as we break those briefs, so the best way to describe it would be, what sort of brief would you want back if you're ending up with that solution? Yeah. And, and then we could then tie that into government funding. We could tie that into some, some you know, policy direction. And now imagine criteria that had these briefs written into them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we're hoping to achieve. And that becomes really exciting. Yeah, it would, seem, it would seem a lot less like an episode of Utopia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've got two questions off, off the back of that. I mean, firstly, for the people listening to this or watching, how could they get involved with, with that kind of mission? And look, we're, we're using a, um, a design approach on the design challenges. So there's, there's been various models and I've been involved in various models, uh, which both been successful and then you know, failed miserably, or spectacularly. <laughs> so, so we're going to prototype it. So we're prototyping what this challenge looks like. And then mm-hmm. again, I suppose we're right at this early phase. And we really want to use our design community to help us design what this looks like. So it actually, they're embedded into the solution. It works for them. Um, so, so at the moment, it's a not, design council is a not-for-profit. We, we want to be there to actually both have a win for the design community. So they're working on, on, on really well-defined problems that are driving impact. But also business can actually drive value through design. Yeah. And so, so the next 12 months we've given ourselves, 12 to 18 months, is to prototype this. So we'll be calling for designers to actually help challenge us. And, and, and to put roll up their sleeves, and, and we want you know students, we want you know, graduates, we want seasoned designers um, to, to help us frame what this means for Australia. Do you think the government's ready for this? And I guess they, on on one hand, they they are putting money behind certain areas, but then on the other hand, they're hiking up the price for humanities. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that you know the the, the job graduates or God, whatever uh, job ready re-graduate package I think he's referring to. Mm-hmm. Look, they can't really comment so much on, on the policy per se, but, you know, it's not unusual for government to do interventions to direct where they want their actual investments to go in education. So so that package is about, you know, here are some skills we think we need in the future and we also need regions. So they're trying to direct money to that. I think the market will determine whether students actually get excited by, you know, discounted fees to, to help direct and I think the government's been quite open by saying, well, they'll, 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 they'll review this as it goes forward. What I think it, it highlighted but was, and I think it's a broader question inside our university structure, is that you know, the days of having just an engineering degree or a law degree or a medical degree, um, mm-hmm. and even just a design degree, are, are, are diminishing. You really need to actually have this transdisciplinary understanding of understanding complex problem solving. So, so these these you know dual degrees are, are a huge um, um, are being being you know put forward by universities and students are lapping this up, and they they're seeing the opportunity by saying I just don't want to be pigeonholed to be X, I want to actually have breadth as well to actually how I can actually be connected. Yeah, and I think so. Whether you say well it's just humanities or engineering, I think it's the wrong question. It's actually how do we bridge the two worlds together? Mm. And that's what I feel the web design has the greatest opportunity, saying yeah, we need expert designers and we need expert engineers. But we also need people who can actually leverage both and then that, that mindset. We kind of reached time. We did, we did have an audience question, which I wanted to okay. throw to you, because it's, it's actually from Ali Kerr, who, um, <laughs> who actually brought us together. Hey, Ali. <laughs> so she said, um, 
Uh, I love what you said about the selling the process rather than the outcome. What's your top tip for helping emerging designers do this? Case studies. So uh, I unpacked yeah. some, some, some case studies of have a great, you know, we can talk about this is the success of what a great design looks like, but these are the steps that it took to get there and what your commitment to the, the, the firm's commitment is versus the designer's responsibility for. It's a partnership. And I think, you know, this moves away from your traditional consulting, you know, transactional relationships. Yeah. That design has to be a partnership in an organisation. It has to be pitched to the right level. Um, and if you're not working at the right level, don't be afraid to, to maybe walk away and saying, I need to move, keep up, and actually, this is going to be so important for you. And this is an example of what can happen when you do that. That's a wonderful answer. I feel, I feel like 